Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 277, being recorded on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, this is a really good time for listeners to pause because we're going to do a deep dive here, so that means it's going to be a little bit of a longer episode, and leave us that five-star review. This episode's going to be so good, you can go ahead and pre-leave us the five-star review. So we'll wait for a second for you to come back. All right. Thanks for doing that. Uh, that really helps us out uh, as we get the word out about the show. So Jason, last year, at, and I went back and had a, one of our mini interns look at this, and it was exactly this time last year. I think it was actually October 2nd, and we're recording this on October 3rd. So it's so pretty darn close. We coined and we, we were doing our, our annual holiday preview and we both coined and predicted Shipageddon. And that is where we saw pretty early on, I think uh, before a lot of the rest of the folks in the industry, that there was going to be both a surge in digital adoption due to COVID plus the normal holiday increase from e-commerce and that that was going to more than absorb all of the available last mile demand. And that's the, why we coined Shipageddon. And it happened and it was bad, uh, but we all survived and made it through. And hopefully the folks listening to this show got in front of that, both on their business and personal side. Well, this year we want to use this episode and do a deep dive into what that's going to look like this year. Um, And it's a more complex situation. Last year was pretty easy to read those tea leaves because, you know, we were already pretty close to capacity before COVID and it was kind of, um, you know, pretty easy prediction to say that we we're going to far exceed the ability to deliver the packages. This year, uh, we have a lot to unpack for you. Spoiler alert, it, it's going to be worse than last year, much worse, because not only is it that last little piece of the whole uh, digital retail chain of events, uh, the last mile, that's going to be a problem, but it's all the other pieces leading into it that are going to be a problem something we call the supply chain, but this year we are going to call it the supply pain. So we're going to peel the onion on this. And first we're going to look at the economic setup heading into holiday 21. Then we're going to look at the global state of supply chain. Then we're going to look at some of the holiday trends uh, that are, are kind of factors we think that are going to tie into this. And last, some of the pontificators are out with their forecasts and we're going to go through those and kind of see you know, what we think about those. Jason, why don't you kick kick it off with the economic setup coming into holiday 21? Yeah. Uh, Awesome, Scott. So first of all, let me start by saying on the the macroeconomic picture, most of the professional analysts that look at this uh, are pretty uniform in feeling like the consumer is generally in a good place, that the economy is in a pretty good place. And they're all very bullish on the consumer's ability to spend this holiday. Um, And I say that because... My own personal feeling is that there's a little more uncertainty cooked in there. There certainly are some encouraging, favorable things, um, and there's a few worrisome things. And I I think what's going to become the theme for all these sections we talk about today is there's a significant amount of uncertainty. There's a lot of things that could swing either way and have a dramatic impact on holiday. So 
uh, it is what it is. But uh, sort of giving you how I look at, at the macroeconomic situation, uh, the first thing we'll talk about is inflation. Or, um, and there's a bunch of ways to look at inflation. But uh, a simple one is there's this thing called the consumer price index, which kind of factors in how much of each good consumers purchase and, and how how uh, much prices are raising for that. And the the CPI is at about 5.25% right now. So that's pretty significantly more expensive goods that consumers are having to pay. Um, and ordinarily, that inflation can be problematic for the economy. Uh, a couple of things to know, though. Uh, if you kind of look at the shape of that CPI, it actually is going down a little bit from a peak in July. And so possible we've seen the the peak of inflation and it's starting to come back down. Um, inflation's a mixed bag for retailers and holiday because they get more money for everything they sell. They tend to sell less stuff but make more on each. Um, in certain circumstances, it can be more profitable. Um but, uh, you know, the goods are costing more. We've got this 5.25% inflation. Uh, we also, though, have a pretty significant increase in wages. So people are getting paid more for their work, particularly low-income people are getting paid more for work. Uh, uh, retailers and warehouses and all kinds of companies are having to raise their wages to compete for the uh, for this labor force that's been hard to find right now. And so... Wages are going up. And in general, the analysts would call those two things a wash, that that consumers are getting bigger paychecks and they're having to spend more on their necessities. Um, and that at the moment, that's about break even. So two interesting things to know. Uh, a kind of predictor of future spending is this this huge survey that University of Michigan does every month, the Consumer Confidence Index. Um, and uh, when when we were kind of in the peak of recovery from the first wave of COVID, uh, that index was a leading indicator that said consumers were starting to feel good about the economy. And it, it hit like it's this index that hit over 100. Um, today, it's sitting at 71, um, which is the lowest point uh, since January of 2019. It's not like a historic low or anything like that, that, you know, you go like, oh, it's way below normal. Um, but it, it does appear that consumers are in general feeling less good about the economy than they were, um, you know, just a month or two ago. Now, there's a bunch of political news out right now, and there was fear of government shutdown that we've already averted, and and those kinds of things have a big impact on the consumer index. So, um, I the consumer index doesn't have a perfect correlation with spending, so I don't spend too much time thinking about it. But just to know, that's a a number that had been favorable and is kind of shrinking down. Um, a big one we talk about is unemployment because if people don't have jobs, it's hard for them to to spend on on goods. Um, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a huge spike in unemployment. Uh, unemployment is actually pretty good right now. We're at 5.2%. Uh, the kind of pre-pandemic average was about four. So we're not all the way back to pre-pandemic average, but that pre-pandemic point was a historic low. So historically, 5.2% is pretty decent for unemployment. Um, so like most, most analysts would say that's a favorable indicator. The two things to know there is, um, that's based on the people that are seeking jobs and not getting it. There, there actually is a ton of people that kind of took themselves out of the workforce. Um, we don't fully understand, uh, where all those people went, but a big chunk of those people were second incomes for households. So like a lot of women, uh, that like maybe don't have as good a health, uh, childcare as they had before or, 
uh, more school challenges or things. And so they haven't gone back to the workforce and many of them aren't seeking work. So they don't show up in the unemployment number. So just be aware, like household incomes are are somewhat stressed because of that uh, factor. And then as we've talked about before on this show, like as of uh, July, um, people that make over $60,000 a year, the unemployment is actually 10% better than it was before the pandemic. So they're doing great. And the low income uh, people that are making less than $30,000 a year, their unemployment is still 21% lower than it was uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. So, so a little bit of a bifurcated recovery on the jobs thing. Um, there, one of the reasons that we historically have thought we had high unemployment was because there's all these rich benefits, this enhanced unemployment benefits that people got that all expired last week. Um, so if people were staying at home because they could make more on unemployment, um, that, that justification probably ended. The bad news is it ended in 26 states over two months ago. And in general, the data shows that people did not rush back to work when it ended. Um, so there's not necessarily a reason to think a ton more people are going to rush back to work, uh, now that, that it's ended everywhere, but we'll have to see. Um, the other macroeconomic things, all of these natural disasters are negative to the economy. So, you know, when Hurricane Ida takes $100 billion out of the economy, that's a bummer. Um, uh, another hugely favorable one, and the one that most of us are hanging our hats on that are looking for a good holiday, is the savings rate. And uh, this is the most unprecedented recession of all times. Uh, unemployment, you know, went way up. Uh, at the peak of of the uh, pandemic, but so did savings, which has never happened before. Um, and part of that was because we had all this uh, stimulus money we were pouring into the economy. Um, but the savings rate normally hovers around 8%. It shot up to 32% during the peak of the pandemic. Um, it's way off of that peak. It's at 9.6, which is still a little higher than it was before the pandemic. Um, and uh, that, that, all that extra money that a lot of households socked away because they got the stimulus and they spent less during the the um, peak of the pandemic, uh, you know, arguably puts consumers in a good place to spend for this holiday. Uh, the counter argument would be all that stimulus is mostly over. Um, there still are, you know, very lumpy employment situation and a lot of that savings has dwindled. Um, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, but then the last uh, fact I'm, I'm uh, going to throw out before I let Scott get a word in edgewise um, is that the stock market has done phenomenally. Right. And we're we're way up from the pre pandemic level. And so the investor class and people that have, you know, a, a, a meaningful portion of their wealth uh, tied to the market uh, did terrific. Right. And so if there is economic uncertainty and instability in this economy it's it's bifurcated and it's it's the lower income people that like do not have equity in the stock market um that were hurt but uh roll all that up and the the professional analysts feel like macroeconomic situation all to all in is pretty good and of course when rich people do well, that helps certain sectors of the economy quite a bit, right? And at the moment, luxury and jewelry are doing phenomenally well, for example. So uh, that's kind of my my snapshot of the macro economy. Scott, anything you'd violently disagree with or anything you pay particular attention to? I think I think that's right. I think uh you know, there's a lot of folks that feel the inflation, the CPI isn't the right inflation number. It's kind of this old metric that it's this basket of goods and doesn't capture a lot of things. 
Um, you know, there's, I, I follow a lot of the crypto people and, you know, so there's been a huge wealth creation through crypto, um, and, and that whole world, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a feeling that the fed has pumped so much cash into the system that it's just sloshing around in kind of crazy ways, which is why you saw that savings rate kind of go up as high as it did. And, you know, their, their talk track goes that that's why we're not seeing as much employment where, where folks have taken some of those free, free dollars and, and, you know, done something with it so that they don't need a job now, or they're, they're going to be less likely to enter the, the workforce. But I, I think it all, you know, I would say I agree with the analyst um, uh, on that. It's going to be a pretty good holiday, but I think the problem, and we'll get into that. Is <laughs> I just don't think there's going to be anything to buy. So I don't, I'm not sure if it matters. Yeah. So step one, American <laughs> families probably have some money to spend. Okay. Uh, yeah. So now, uh, as we've already alluded to the, the next challenge is what does the supply chain look like and what could they spend it on? And Scott, what's your kind of um, uh, read there? Yeah, supply chain is one of those things we always talk about, but then, you know, and in your mind, you have this kind of linkage, you know, these things linked together. Uh, I remember as a kid, when you would cut out the little, um, you know, construction paper strips and make the little chain to go around the the, the holiday tree there, the, uh, it kind of reminds me of that. And we kind of vaguely talk about it as this big, big thing, and we want to really unpack it on this episode. So, So as a summary, you know, there's... When you make a product, let's say it's uh, one that I'm intimately familiar with right now is a vehicle, that, which is one of the more complex products, or even a, you know, a relatively simple product like an electronic toy or uh, an apparel item or almost anything, it, it's going to have, first of all, it, it's going to have component parts, right? So there's going to be some form of pieces that go into that. I kind of mentally think of them as the Lego blocks that make up that item. So if it's a cool, trendy trench coat, there's going to be obviously fabric, buttons, um, you know, maybe a variety of fabrics and things like that. So there's, there's generally, it's hard to make any product without there being at least 10 inputs. And then many times thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands, as you get into like iPhones and vehicles and stuff like that. So, so that's important to remember is each one of those component parts has a supply chain, right? And you can't make a widget until its component pieces are all there. So, so what happens is we're seeing this really interesting and it's hard to know the root cause there, there's, you know, some of the economic stuff you talked about as part of it, where we're just having labor shortages that, that cause things. But then, you know, we'll talk about some of this. There's, we import a lot of our goods from China and they're having all kinds of issues of their own. There's COVID related things, non COVID related things. But generally, let, let's think about the supply chain um, in, in kind of the broad sense of you have uh, typically the bulk of goods are made offshore. Some of them are, are made onshore, but let, let's kind of assume in this example, uh, a lot of these products are coming from offshore or at least the, the many of the components. Maybe there's some assembly in the US, but at least the, the components for a, any widget are made offshore. So that's number one. So that has to be made in a factory somewhere uh, and then shipped here. So there's the port of origin. So it leaves a port in a foreign land uh, and then needs to come on its way to the United States for a consumer to buy it. Um, that journey uh, can go a variety of different ways. Well, two, it can go by boat or air. Um, the, the standard way that products are moved um, is through containers. 
So you buy, everyone's seen these containers. There's all these cool, you know, we just opened up here, a, a, a restaurant container village kind of a thing. Um, so you have those containers. Uh, they're specialized boats that carry these and, and or you can put them on airplanes. Um, so then they get on a boat. Let's say the bulk of products do go by boat. There is some by air. Then they have to go uh, over the sea and then they get to a destination port. So there's, uh, you know, there's two ports involved with every product that comes across in a container. Then it has to be unloaded from that boat. You've probably seen these giant cranes um, somewhere. Uh, fun Star Wars fact. Those are the um, that's where George Lucas got the idea for at-ats. He saw some of the cranes in one of the ports uh, on the West Coast and thought of, you know, what if you had giant walking robots that looked like that? Um, so those have to be unloaded. Um, and then typically uh, you're going to put them on either. So so then when they get to, to the United States in one of the ports, they're going to be offloaded onto either a truck. And then part of the truck that's really critical in this is called a chassis. So if you've ever seen, you've probably driven by a million of these container trucks, but if you take the container off, that's the chassis part is you've got the front part of the truck, then you've got the chassis, which holds the container, and then the container sits squarely on there. It's pretty clever if you think about how it's all been designed. Or that same container can be put over on rail. So there's specialized railroad uh, cars for carrying containers. Um, and then... Um, and then you know the product goes on its way. Then it makes it to a warehouse, and then it goes uh, to you know from that fulfillment center. It gets distributed many times through a couple, maybe from a big kind of inbound fulfillment center to some regionals to some locals, and maybe even one step closer to kind of hyper local. Um, and then it gets into the last mile delivery part of the world. Um, so it gets onto the virtual shelves, and then is sold and goes into that last mile. So. There's, there's a lot that has to happen right in there, and we're going to go through some of the things that are not working right now. And, you know, like any, any chain, um, any, you know, there's a least common denominator problem. So all that can work great. And if you don't have last mile vehicles, then you've got a problem. Or if the factories aren't making things fast enough, then the whole chain is compressed and you've got this other set of problems. And, you know, where we are now is almost every single part of that chain I just walked through is, is kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sporked or in a, in a bad situation right now. And, and we'll take you through some examples. Jason, let's start with factories. What's going on there? Yeah. Well, a couple of challenges with factories. Um, so uh, obviously the, we have the most factories in China and the good news with China is COVID is mostly under control. They've they definitely have had a a spike from from Delta. They almost had had it down to zero before Delta, um, but uh, because of their their concerns about the the virus, they have China has what's called the zero COVID policy. And what that means is, if they have a single case of COVID, they will they will shut down an entire business or even a sector of business. Um, so while there's not huge outbreaks of COVID in factories right now, uh, there, there have been a bunch of examples where only a few cases of COVID showed up and that caused a factory to be closed for two weeks. So there, there have been some disruptions with the Chinese factories, but the bigger problem has been that it, uh, from before and at the very beginning of COVID, a lot of manufacturing got diversified and moved out of China, right? And so, the second biggest manufacturer of apparel behind China right now is Vietnam. Um, Vietnam has has had a lot of trouble with Delta, and about a third of the factories in Vietnam are shut down right now. So 
a lot of the factories that make goods are not making as many goods either because uh, they don't have very good access to vaccines um, and they're having COVID problems or they have really rigid government policies like China. And then forecasting a future problem that's a huge Debbie Downer is China is actually experiencing a real energy crisis right now. And uh, China always has to kind of ration electricity and they give quotas at the beginning of every year to these factories and factories often have to shut down because they exceed their quotas. Well, uh, this year, like they, they have less uh, energy capacity in China for a variety of reasons. And the cost of coal has gone way up. Um, there's there's fixed pricing for for energy in China. And so the the producers can't charge more, even though the coal costs more. And so they have less incentive to make it which means there's less energy. And so uh, there's a lot of fear that there's going to be a ton more slowdowns of Chinese factories because of this looming energy crisis. So all of those things are uh, kind of conspiring to make like the amount of product available from the factories like can significantly inconsistent um, and hard to predict. Okay. Um, and then... Say say the coal thing again, because I've read a couple articles on this and I haven't 100% understood it. So they're yeah. in an attempt to be green, they've lowered the price of coal. So coal manufacturers have stopped making coal. Is yeah. that- so I think that's what the, the green thing has a, a significant impact here. But the the um, communist country, they they set the the it's a uh, the energy industry is a tightly regulated industry. And so the prices are fixed so that. So the government decides at the beginning of the year what the price of electricity is going to be. So then these factories are only allowed to charge that price or plus or minus 10% of that price. And coal is 400% more expensive. So a lot of factories don't want to, a lot of power plants don't want to make energy electricity from coal right now because they can't do it profitably. They don't have permission from the government to charge 400% for their electricity. Um, but they're having to pay 400% for their coal. So, uh, there is less production because of that. It is also absolutely true uh, that China has some uh, uh, zero emissions by, I want to say, 2060 things, and they have concrete milestones in place every year. And so even before COVID, that constrained how much electricity they were going to be able to make this year with current production means. Um, and it, it meant that factories had a quota um, and, and often that means factories do periodically shut down when they use up their quota. Uh, factories are rushing to get more efficient. So they're all, it's, it's, it's like everything It creates all these downstream effects, whatever equipment you use to make your stuff, there's probably a more energy uh, efficient version of that equipment that you now want to buy, but is hard to get your hands on. So all the factories are competing for the more energy efficient, uh, versions of all this, this materials, but, uh, the, it's likely that more factories are going to be shut down for longer this year than ever before because of uh, energy shortages. Yeah. And I saw an interesting graphic. I forget. I think it was either Bloomberg or wall street journal where the government then said, well, if you're going to shut down energy, they created these zones and they put like a lot of the Apple manufacturing plants in the, the greener zones that would get more power, but then they neglected a lot of the input parts. So they're the, the factories that can make the iPhone 13 are operating, but they're sitting there idle because the the red zones that aren't getting a lot of power or or only able to run like half a shift are are um, yeah. you know 
per, not able to per make your components. point, like even if the Lego factory is allowed to make Lego castles, if if uh, they're not allowed to make red blocks, it's tough to make a lot of Lego castles. Uh, yeah. So that that is yeah, it, it's a mess. And then to give you an idea how acute it is, normally they only shut down the the industrial areas. Um, there there's so much uh, constrained energy now that they're starting to shut down residential areas. So people are are like having their power and their residences turned off as well. Interesting. And then I've been tracking ports here in the U S very closely. Um, but what are you seeing at ports of origin, um, in other countries? Yeah. Um, well, this is one where very, uh, publicly this zero COVID policy that China has instituted has come into play. Um, so that, that all the biggest ports in the world are in China, um, the third largest port in the world uh, is uh, divided into four terminals. One of the four terminals was just shut down for two weeks because of a single positive test of COVID. Um, and so that, uh, again, to the extent that the factories are making stuff and they need to load up all those containers, um, if, if they have to stop loading for two weeks, that that creates a real lumpiness in the in the supply chain. And uh, that is a particularly hard thing to predict, right? Like if you're just saying like, oh, man, if a, a factory, you know, has a bunch of, of uh, 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 sick workers, it's going to shut down. You can kind of watch that and see it coming. Uh, but what you can't see coming is, you know, uh, a very small number of cases having a very material impact on the supply chain like these these ports that are shutting down. Um, and so the the. Those those impacts are are sort of outsized on the supply chain at the moment. Yeah, and then so so now we've got our products. Uh, you know, if they can make it through this gauntlet that we've already laid out, uh, they're going to get on a boat, and they are going to go get packed into a container. And there's a fun, you know, if you're a, a business, you're trying to get as much of this product into a container as possible um, because it's pretty much all you can eat once you once you buy a container. There's fractional containers and whatnot. And because of uh, there's a shortage in containers, um, and then the cost to send these containers has gone way up. So right now, uh, as we record this, the cost, there's actually a, a, an index you can look at this. So if you were, we'll put a link to show notes, but if you Google Freight, Freightos, F-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-S uh, index, there's an index that tracks this. Um, and we have hit a record of 20586 average dollars to send a container. And that's twice what it was in July of this year. And that was twice of what it was in January. So we effectively, you know, in July, it was about $10,000. And in January, it was about $5,000. Now, you know, another interesting factor here is depending on how many units you put in a container, you divide that, that unit cost, right? So if you're putting, I'll keep the math easy, a thousand units in one of these containers, which would be something relatively big, um, you're going to, you know, you just added effectively another, you know, Buck, or let's see, uh, I should do this math. Uh, your fifteen dollars to the product, uh, just in in kind of landing cost with this with this increase. So whatever your cost is on a per unit, it's gone up uh, effectively four x um, since January. So so that's a factor to consider. And what I'm what I'm hearing from people on the ground is. You'll go bid, and you kind of get get in front of this number right now. So you'll you're actually out there bidding today, thirty thousand to get a container, and then you think you'll have one, and then they'll say, "Oh, you know, we need to reevaluate that because the the shipping company I'm talking to is now saying it's thirty three thousand. So there's this like running auction to get space on these boats that are coming over because of some of the rest of the supply chain uh, that we'll talk about. 
So, so how about air? So that's that's what it looks like by boat. What are you seeing on the air side? Yeah, and obviously the the most cost effective way to get all this stuff here is via boat. So you'd prefer to do that. But when the boats aren't available, or if you you need stuff considerably faster, like a in in good times it takes a boat about forty days to move a container from China to the west coast of of the U.S. Um, so some goods do come via air. And little known fact, 50% of air freight that comes into the U.S. comes on the bottom of uh, passenger airplanes, right? So it's not it's not uh, FedEx and UPS planes flying from China to the U.S. cargo planes. It's, it's the bottom of these passenger planes. And guess what is not happening right now is international travel. <laughs> so there's just way less flights, and so there's way less capacity for this air freight. And so both... Because there's more demand for air freight because of all the problems with the ocean freight and because there's less supply, um, the, the air option has, has you know, been dramatically diminished from where it would normally be. Yep. So then, uh, so then you decide, okay, well, I've got to put on a boat. You do that. You wait your 40 days, and then uh, what you find out is you're delayed for, for a very long time because the part – the problem is the – U.S. ports are all pretty much maxed out, so we've we've kind of done this um, very big underinvesting in our ports. So um, one of our, our our biggest one is in Los Angeles at Long Beach, um, and then we have Savannah, New York, New Jersey, and then there's a lot of secondary and tertiary ports, but those are the big ones. And there's another index uh, that Bloomberg puts out, which is effectively the number of boats that are anchored offshore and. You know what you want to? You never want to anchor these things because um, you effectively they're just sitting there. All that product's just sitting there, uh, you know, doing nothing, waiting. And the reason, you know, the reason why they're sitting there is the ports are they can't unload the products fast enough. And there's a million reasons why. We'll talk about that in, in a second. But this just actually ticked up over. There's over 40 boats. Uh, in, and this is interesting. I've read a data point that says 70 for Los Angeles and 40. I think there's 40 anchored and 30 actively kind of being done. There's these maps. Um, if you look at my Twitter feed, I just tweeted one that just show, you know, the, the port and the congestion. There's just all these boats just sitting there waiting to come on shore. Um, uh, I have a friend that, that uh, lives in LA and they can just, as they drive around, they can just see the boats out there just stacked. Uh, it's very unusual uh, yeah. time frame. One of the supply um, chain guys I work with suggested that we should start a new company, Uber Barge, where we deliver like in and out burgers to all these boats that are stuck offshore. <laughs> someone, uh, someone tried to actually get a helicopter to go out one to get their container off. And yeah, you, know, you can't do that. Cause no. if you've ever seen these things, they're stacked like 50 deep or something. It's crazy. You can't just say, I really need that one right there. <laughs> Um, so, so this, this index just ticked over 70 for the first time ever since it's been created, which is just, just crazy. Um, and you know, so why is it taking so long to offload the boats? Well, uh, we've underinvested in these things and then we have this, this continued problem with the supply chain. Number one, um, there's not enough people uh, to, uh, I think it's longshoremen. Uh, there's a lot of these union type jobs that you hear about that do this. So there's uh, longshoremen are the ones that um, offload products for a long time due to COVID, they were only running um, like half the number of shifts they used to. So they have actually spun that up. They're running more shifts, um, but now there's a shortage of chassis. Uh, and then because of that, you know, if you don't have chassis, you can still offload the boat, but now you have to put it into kind of medium term or short term storage. Um, and then all that is full. 
So, so there's, there's not enough chassis. There's not enough truck drivers. Uh, if there is chassis and then if there's not chassis, all the storage is full. Um, and then the, when, when a product comes off the boat at the port, it, it can either go by truck or rail. The whole rail system is all jammed up as well. Uh, the, uh, this is interesting. I read this one article that, you know, near you in the Joliet train yard, which is one of the biggest ones in the middle of the country. Um, they're so jammed up. They have over 8,000 containers stacked there waiting for more train capacity. Um, and then some, some days the trains are backed up for 25 miles waiting, you know, as they're loading these containers on there to try to do this. Um, a normal turnaround for a chassis to go uh, at a port to deliver something to where it's going and come back is three and a half days. And due to all these various shortages, uh, that has extended out to 17 days. So, so that's pretty crazy. Uh, a big factor in this port jam up is also the shortage of uh, drivers. Um, and I call them CDL drivers, which is a commercial driver's license. To drive one of these uh, 18 wheelers that's going to carry a container, you have to have a, uh, you know, a certification for a certain type of vehicle. There's, it's relatively you know, time consuming to go get the certification. And the number of drivers that have this is, is actually decreasing over time as they age out. Not enough people are coming into the profession. So uh, I read one article and this was by one of the one of the professional groups of CDL drivers that there's about 240,000 shortfall of CDL drivers compared to um, kind of where the demand is. There's, there's about, you call it 250,000 fewer drivers than they need. So we're seeing, you know, I I think I can't remember if it was you or someone, but Amazon and Walmart are in effectively a a gunfight over these people where they're charged. They're, they're, they're paying crazy signing bonuses and hourly rates uh, and, and salaries for any kind of truck drivers. And so because they're the biggest employers of these things, um, they, they tend to have the better economics and it's really starving out other parts of the market as, as they absorb all the, the available CDL drivers. Yeah. Yeah. Walmart's paying a hundred and for a new driver, $160,000 a year and an $8,000 signing bonus. Yeah. Yes. It's not an uncommon, uncommon thing to see out there. It's pretty crazy. So that's what's going on at the ports. It is a hot mess on this side as well. So even if you are fortunate enough to get your product here to the U S then, you know, you're looking at probably an extra 40 days. Um, I think is kind of, you know, what, what everyone's saying right now. And that's average. It can take uh, a lot longer. The LA port is so jammed up that people are, are, they're rerouting, you know, rerouting boats uh, across the U S and getting them to other, other ports. But there are, you know, like there's one in Georgia and it's uh, the Savannah one and it's getting backed up. Um, I just saw they authorized building this, this kind of effectively opening up a big giant parking area to put containers. And um, that's going to give them some more storage capacity, but, but, you know, where if you add up those, you know, here we are, you know, in October and you start adding these things together, the, the holiday's pretty much baked at this point, right? There's you maybe have 15 to 20 days of window here for stuff you already ordered 80 days ago to kind of get here, but none of this stuff is going to get fixed fast. Uh, that's going to be part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you follow the earning calls, like uh, Nike, for example, like dramatically lowered their guidance and they said, Hey, look, it's, it, it's costs four times as much to get a container of shoes here. And the container takes twice as long to get here. Um, and so we're just not going to have the supply to hit our original guidance. And and Nike's better at this than uh, a lot of other people. So it's a, 
pretty prominent problem. And then there's all these secondary impacts, right? So you you mentioned the the math of the container, right? Like you you'd like to fill up that forty foot container with goods. If your goods only take up ninety percent, ordinarily you'd put someone else's goods in the last ten percent to try to make it more uh, cost effective and efficient and share those costs. But when the unloading is so gummed up, what you don't want to do is have a secondary process where that container comes off the boat, has to get repacked. Your stuff goes one way, their stuff goes another way. So people are actually shipping containers less full than they normally would, which is entirely counterintuitive for what you would expect. Um, the boats are all slowing down because they can use less gas to come here in 80 days than to come here in 40 days because there's no place to unload them. Um, and the, the supply chain guys, I'm t- like, we've, we've been helping a lot of retailers hire truckers lately. Um, and they, they kind of summarize it real simply. Like the average commercial truck driver was 55 years old with multiple comorbidities. A bunch of them retired and all the trucking schools that can teach people to get these licenses shut down for COVID. So there were no new licenses being issued for like a year. Um, and so there's just this, this huge acute problem. And then, you know, without those truck drivers, with the train problems and barge problems, if you're on the Mississippi, uh, there's just like no place to move all those goods. You mentioned people are moving the boats from from uh, some ports to secondary ports. That helps somewhat. But the the biggest cargo ships can't even fit in these ports. Right. So like Long Beach, the one of the, the most advanced ports we have, certainly the most advanced on the West Coast, um, can't take the the two biggest class of ships it can only take the third biggest class of ships and then as soon as you divert that ship to portland instead of long beach it, the the that class of ships won't won't fit there and so like there's there's a limited option to just move this stuff around so we're just we're we're gummed up like never before um and most scary of all uh, Gap in their earnings call kind of um, said like, hey, we're lowering our guidance and we're, we're going to have very lumpy inventory um, and we don't see any um, alleviation of these inventory challenges until at least 2023. Wow. Yeah. In the uh, auto world, we're having a huge problem here where, um, you know, there's a chip shortage and then you, another problem is you spin down these factories and they don't just get spun back up because all the component parts are you know, they stop ordering them and then those factories and everything. So so even as chips are starting to come in, um, a lot of the vehicles can't be made because there's some other component that now is stuck in one of these containers that, that we're talking about. Um, I read this other interesting article where Coca-Cola has several of their bottling facilities that are down waiting on replacement parts. So they went and basically leased 20 or 40 bulk ships uh, and they didn't even worry about getting containers and they just ju- dumped onto those ships the pieces they need to make their factories work and, and are, are bringing them over in this kind of, you know, crazy, never done before way for, for a big company. Yeah. And I guess that, that, that's one last point on this supply chain thing. Um, it, it definitely is favoring the the biggest players in every industry, right? So if you're uh, the, you know, the biggest receivers of goods in the U S you're, you're still being impacted by all of this, but you're first in line for what capacity does exist. And you you mentioned the games that the brokers are playing with the price of containers. Um, that's going to happen a lot more to the independent shipper than it is uh, the you know number one or number two shipper for that port. And so uh, while this this is a, a pain for every retailer in America, 
it's going to be less painful to Walmart and Amazon than it's going to be to the the medium sized specialty retailer, for example. Um, and I was just going to point out, I think you saw this as well, Scott, but like Salesforce kind of put together a holiday forecast and they looked at all these supply chain problems and they're estimating um, that this is going to add about $233 billion in extra supply chain costs to holiday sales for the U.S. So that's going to come like straight out of, of margins, basically, or or drive more inflation. Yeah, that's for the products that get here. There's this another side of that equation, where which is the opportunity cost, right? Because yeah, you know, um, there's not going to be a lot of exciting merchandise on the shelf. So you know, where you know, what's the opportunity cost of that? We'll, we'll have to kind of we'll get to that, I guess, when we talk about forecast. So what what holiday behaviors are feeding into this? Yeah, so tricky. Um, this one is is there there wild swings both ways, right? So you you think if you remember at the beginning of COVID, there were fundamental changes that happened. People spent a lot less on travel, they spent a lot less on restaurants, they spent a lot more on their homes, and they spent a lot more grocery stores, right? And so then, as uh, people got more comfortable, as people started getting vaccinated, as as infection rates started going down, we started seeing all those things swing back, right? And you started seeing. Um, a lot more bookings at Airbnb. You saw a lot more uh, airline reservations. You saw a lot more traffic coming to stores. And you certainly saw a lot more people going back to restaurants. Then Delta hit and we saw a dip again. And people started returning to the the, the kind of earlier COVID behaviors. Not as dramatically as the first wave, but you, you kind of had a, a second wave. And so predicting which of those behaviors are going to be uh, at the uh, at the peak for holiday is really hard right now. So retailers are looking at consumer sentiment. And uh, Doug McMillan, uh, like in his investor call, he's like, hey, uh, our consumer has told us strongly they want to have a normal holiday, <laughs> that they, they want to sit down with their family and have a meal. Um, they want to travel. They want to do the normal things. And there's a strong desire and that if it is remotely safe, they will do it. And Doug's like kind of uh, under his breath comment was, even if it's not safe, they're probably going to do it. Right. So um, his, his feeling is there's there's so much fatigue um, in all of these like COVID change behaviors uh, that we're going to see a, a significant return to you know, closer to pre-COVID behaviors. But, um, you know, we are we are seeing some signs go the other way. Uh, in the U.S., store traffic never fully recovered. We are still down about 10% versus pre-COVID levels. In China, store traffic totally recovered. And then Delta hit and store traffic dropped back down 30% below pre-pandemic uh, levels. And so since China has historically been about four months ahead of us, that that would predict that we're going to see another drop in um, store traffic, which, again, doesn't mean people won't spend. It means they're going to buy more online instead of in store. And that exacerbates all of the last mile problems that we talked about last year. And we're going to talk about a, a, again um, uh, this year. So it's really risky to predict uh what what's going to happen with the COVID behaviors. People were starting to buy a lot of clothes again after having not bought clothes in a year. Um, and now the clothes sales are slowing down. And then we talked about like apparel is one of the categories most impacted by all these supply chain issues. So there just may not be clothes to buy. Um, and so really hard to predict that stuff. Um, 
But what I can tell you is retailers now have a couple of reasons to desperately get you to shop earlier, right? One reason is they're not going to have very much stuff and they don't want to be the Grinch that caused you to miss Christmas. So they desperately want you to come in early and give yourself the best chance to get the stuff you want. So the uh, every retailer is is uh, more loudly than ever before trying to incentivize and entice customers to shop early. Um, also, if this ends up being another digital Christmas where people shop a lot more online than they do in stores, uh, we have a huge problem with the last mile. We don't have enough capacity in FedEx, UPS, and the U.S. Post Office to deliver twice as many packages over holiday. Um, and so we need to spread that those those orders out over more days. And so for all of those reasons, we're seeing retailers start their sales earlier than ever. So to kind of paint you a promotional picture, Amazon Prime Day normally is in summer. It historically celebrated Amazon's birthday, which is in July. So then the pandemic hits, they can't have a July sale. So they had an October sale and it went really well. So this year, they went back to summer, but they went to earlier summer. They had the sale in June, and a lot of us think they did it earlier in June for one of two reasons. Either they hate their own CFO and wanted him to have to talk on earnings calls about the sale being in a different quarter every year for the last three years, um, or they were having the sale earlier to make room for a second big sale they intend to have this year during holiday to kind of repeat the success of, of uh, holiday prime day last year. And um, we haven't seen any uh, all the announcements yet, but Amazon has already announced a 30-day beauty and personal care sale starting in October of this year. Um, Target matched that and said, hey, we're going to start our deal days in October, and we're price matching for the whole holiday. So if, uh, if you don't believe us and you think we're just making a, a joke about these early sales and you think there's going to be better sales later... Um, no, if you buy it early, we'll guarantee you, uh, that, that will match any lower prices that you see anywhere for the rest of holiday. So, so targets leaning heavily into that. Um, and we think most retailers are, are going to launch their sales earlier than ever before to try to pull in these, these early shoppers, um, because of all the supply chain and inflation issues, the sales aren't going to be as good as they usually are. Like the what used to be 40% off is going to be 25% off. Um, but but what deals they do have are going to be earlier in the year to try to drive those, those sales earlier. Um, and people aren't going to get everything they want. They're going to be limited inventory. And so what's going to happen? People are going to get more gift cards. People are going to uh, celebrate the holiday later. And we're going to sell more stuff in January. January is always a good holiday month anyway. But January is going to be disproportionately large this year because of the lumpy supply chain things. So um, if, if you think of holiday as generally like being a strong peak in October between that, that the kind of uh, turkey five, um, this holiday more than ever before, uh, that spending starting in October and is going to last all the way through January. Yeah, and then as we get to the last mile, um, we're definitely going to have another ship again. So we've got... You know, we haven't increased our capacity hardly any because you can't really buy vans and the everyone's renting vans and, and there's just this fixed number of delivery vehicles. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to have this less store traffic, even more e-commerce than last year, even if you throw, you know, maybe low middle digit, low single digits on there, like five or 7% or something. Well, we, we effectively had 98 
we could only deliver like 97% of the packages last year. So it's going to make it a, you know, now we'll only be able to deliver maybe 90% of the packages. So it, it's going to be really tough delivery setup coming into the holiday. Yeah. I, I think um, the, like some, some data points I saw that, that are alarming. Like, so number one, the, all the fulfillment centers have an average turnover rate of like 400% a year, right? So they're having a hard time hiring people and keeping people. Um, FedEx in their earnings call said that like, we just can't staff some of our distribution hubs. So we're having to reroute packages in a less efficient manner because for example, we only have 60% of our labor force in our Portland hub, right? So ordinarily they would try to be at 120% of their labor in these hubs for holiday with all this seasonal labor. And this year, they they can't even fulfill all the permanent jobs they have. So there's not going to be a seasonal flex for the the main carriers. Um, you know, the retailers do a lot of seasonal hiring for stores, but they're prioritizing the uh, seasonal hiring for their fulfillment centers over the stores because they're so worried about enough labor to fulfill all these packages. Um, and then, you know, when when FedEx and UPS have less capacity – what do they do? They smartly charge more for it. So um, we've seen gas surcharges. We've seen holiday surcharges. And and they're now announcing their rate hikes for January. And FedEx announced the largest rate hike they've had in the last 10 years. So on average, it's almost 6%. It's 5.9% uh, rate hike. It varies wildly depending on the class of service. So some kinds of shippers are going to get hit much harder. Um, and just like last year, all of the, the big shippers have a quota and they're not going to be allowed to ship more more packages. Um, the maybe one silver lining in this is uh, that because retailers are likely to be more successful in spreading the demand out this year than last year, that's going to help a little bit. And um, as as every, as challenges everyone's going to be with the capacity. Last year there were political um, challenges that that particularly got uh, the U.S. Post Office sideways, which is a big part of this whole whole chain. And they don't anticipate that that will be as bad this year. And so uh, there is absolutely going to be ship again in 2.0 this year with the um, the the last mile. Um, but the most of the analysts I'm talking to are saying the first mile is going to be so disrupted this year that the last mile is going to seem less severe in comparison. <laughs> Whereas last year, the the holiday challenges were all about the last mile. Yeah. And, you know, the double-edged sword of there not being enough product is maybe there just won't be enough product and, and it won't be a ship again. But if you know, whatever there is, is going to get jammed up, I think. Yeah. So that's a great transition to, so like, uh, uh, that's a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, what's, what's going to happen for holidays? Should we all be shorting the retail stocks? Like what's, what's going to happen? Um, and, uh, spoiler alert, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about our educated guesses, but maybe before we do, we can walk through some of the the forecasts from the the brave souls that have been willing to share their holiday forecasts. Yeah, the one the one I saw was from Salesforce, and they you know uh, they say that e commerce is going to be up seven percent versus kind of that huge surge last year, which was like you know fifty percent. So, so they're coming in kind of with a moderate seven um, percent growth, which, which is going. You know, I think that would be the probably the slowest e-commerce growth since two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah, that'd be two thousand eight so, exactly. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's that's the one I was tracking. Um, and you know, when I read through the bullet points, it made sense. They're they're definitely putting a pretty wet blanket on things due to the this kind of quote unquote supply pain. Yeah, and it it is tricky. Yeah, so they were the only one I've seen that's done an e-commerce forecast, right? And I would say that's the most uncertain because of we just don't know whether people are going to go back to stores or whether they're going to be worried about health and ordering online when they start having constrained um, supplies. Is that going to push them online more because they can hunt more places or is that going to entice them to go to the store because they can use their eyes to see the inventory for themselves? Like there's there's a lot of variability in that e-commerce number. Um, but I would remind people, even as low as 7% sounds, it's. 7% on top of a huge basis from last year, right? So it's it's um that's not a decline in e-commerce by any means. That's a slowing of the increase. Um just as a reminder for for people um but then I did see several like of the of the kind of traditional consultants put together a overall holiday forecast, right? So uh Bain predicted that uh they were going that they thought holiday was going to be up 7% from last year. Deloitte said that they thought holiday was going to be up between seven and nine percent from last year. Um, and MasterCard said they think holiday is going to be up seven point four percent from last year. Um, so to put all three of those numbers in context, those are all huge numbers. Um, last year was the best holiday year in 10 years and sales were up 10 percent. Um but the average is about 6%. So saying we're going to grow, if it, you know, these three things kind of all averaged out to about 7% growth. If, we're, if we grow, th- if all holiday store and e-commerce grow 7% um, on top of the 10% from last year, that's a phenomenal holiday. Um, and so that says that these guys are, are pretty confident that the consumer is going to spend, even if they can't find exactly what they want, right? Um, that the supply chain is going to be painful, but that the, all the macroeconomic stuff we talked about at the beginning is going to win out and consumers are going to spend a lot of money this holiday. Um, I, I, I want to believe this. I'm going to be pleasantly surprised if it plays out like that. Right. And my, um, the, the one caveat I'll say is, that U.S. retail is incredibly diversified, right? And so for every category that's going to get shellacked by the supply chain or by changes in COVID behaviors, some other category is going to benefit, right? And so it it is true um, that the holiday could absolutely hit these numbers. Like I'll remind people that uh, cars are 25% of retail sales. Gas is another huge chunk of retail sales, Um some of these forecasts have those things in, some don't. Some of these forecasts are for November and December. Some are for November, December, and January. Like everybody has a different definition of retail and a different definition of holiday. So you can't really apples to apples any of these. But I pulled all the U.S. Department of Commerce data. And again, last year, November through January, 10% growth. Um, average of the last 10, uh, 10 years is about 6% growth. Um, so uh, 7% growth is a, a, a terrific number. And, um, I, uh, I don't know. I, I could see it happening. If it happens, it's going to be because there was a, uh, we had the most monster January ever, because I just don't think there's going to be enough goods on the shelf in November and December to do it. Yeah. I'll take a 
So I think the winners are going to be the companies that have the most power and smartest supply chain operators. So I think Walmart and Amazon and maybe Target, I don't know them as well. Do they have a, you think they, they feel like they have a pretty dialed in supply yeah, they, chain? Uh, Walmart and Target both in their earnings said like, look, our inventory isn't going to be, isn't where we want it. It's not going to be where we want it. Um, but we, we in general are feeling good and neither one lowered its, its guidance for holiday in their last earnings call. So they both felt that they were going to weather the storm. Um, but you know, below that you go look at like a bed, bath and beyond. And they're like, look, there's no way we can hit our numbers with the supply we're going to get. Well, they missed this quarter. And yeah. if you miss this quarter, you're, you're just going to get worse next quarter. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, um, it's a poop storm now and it's going to be a bloodbath in, in 90 days. Yeah. So I think, I think if I kind of do the calculus on that, I think those three guys win. I think everyone else is net negative. And, you know, I don't think those three are big enough. Let's say they represent Amazon's kind of half of e-commerce. I only think about e-commerce. The rest of retail is uh, that's your, your, your bailiwick. Um, yeah. Amazon's half. Yeah. I, I could see it being flat to down 5% because, you know, Amazon, Walmart and target doing decent, isn't going to be enough, um, for, for, to make up for the, the hole that that's created there. So, yeah, so that, that's kind of where I see it. It's going to be, you know, the big get bigger and stronger. And, and because they, you know, they have prime, they have more technology so that this has been on their radar longer. They have more containers. They have more trucks. They have more dollars to spend on solving these problems. They're going to be the winners. So, so that's going to be, you know, it is going to be a, I think a bad year for the small, medium sized business, the incumbent brands that, that are just getting their legs under them and, you know, having to kind of have a miss effectively miss a holiday because you couldn't get a bunch of product. It's just going to be, be a rough, rough year for everybody. Yeah, no, I, in a way, it's going to be the exact opposite of last um, year. Uh, when COVID first hit, nobody obviously had advanced warning or was prepared for this. And so uh, a um, a secondary impact was a bunch of e-commerce sites that didn't traditionally get a lot of consumer uh, visits got a lot of trials because Amazon constrained FBA and Amazon had supply chain problems, right? And so suddenly... You were looking to get your Instapot from Bed Bath and Beyond. Suddenly, a bunch of people were looking to see what eBay had that hadn't shopped eBay in five or ten years, right? So, a lot of those kind of um, second tier e-commerce sites got extra visits as people were trying to address the supply chain shortages. This year, I think we're going to have exactly the opposite. There's going to be a ton of supply chain shortages. There's going to be a lot of news stories every day about supply chain shortages. And the big players with the best infrastructure and the most advanced supply chain planning, um, like the Amazons and Walmarts of the world um, and and targets uh, are going to be the winners. And uh, it's it's going to be a lot harder for those specialty retailers and regional retailers uh, to compete, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is the setup and we will continue so that hopefully that gives everyone an idea of the big talk in the industry. Um, and you were just at an industry event. Is this what everyone was talking about, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, slightly less than I would have expected. I mean, it was a huge topic. Everyone understands the supply chain thing. Um, uh, I do think it was the first conversation, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, customer experience folks and people that, you know, were kind of had their head down in their own, in their own uh, silo, you know, were suddenly getting their eyes open to the fact that like, 
Yeah, your customer experience is going to stink if there's no products on the shelf. <laughs> Makes the CX uh, person's job a lot easier. They, they just, you know, they can just take the holiday off. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it is interesting, though, uh, again, like, you, you know, we may, we may hit the, the top line numbers, and it, it may be from a lot less items that sold more expensively. Um, the, you know, categ- there's going to be winning and losing categories by far. And again, because of the consumer health and the supply chain issues, uh, the supply chain for diamonds is looking a lot better than the supply chain for budget shoes. Um, and so you, you know, you just may see luxury where, you know, you, sm- you sell a few things for a lot, do better, um, you know, where, where there's extra scarcity than, you know, some of these low margin, high volume consumer goods. And so I, I, I think, uh, my, my key takeaways for everyone is, um, it's going to be a very lumpy, like the averages will be interesting. We should all follow them, but, but every, um, retailer in every category is going to experience a very different holiday. Um, and there just is more uncertainty than there has been in the last 30 years of retail. So like for anyone to definitively say, this is how holiday is going to play out, I think is super risky because there's so many things that could go either way at this point. Will consumers, um, you know, buy another toy when they can't get their first choice? Will consumers go to a restaurant, um, you know, uh, or not, will consumers take a vacation or not? Uh, you know, all of these, these, will they pay 5% more for something or not? Like there's just so much uncertainty, um, that, you know, this is going to be, a uh, a holiday that really rewards people that do a uh, good scenario planning and are prepared for any eventuality. Absolutely. And we will keep you posted here on the Jason and Scott show, but hopefully this gives everyone kind of a, a framework to work within and we'll be updating uh, various components of the supply pain as we uh, get closer to holiday. Yeah. Uh, and until next week, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 